Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the legislature was recalled to Queen's Park to introduce legislation that would prohibit and require the termination of any strikes or lockouts by the Ontario Power Generation. Hamilton City Council is debating whether or not they'll allow bricks-and-mortar pot shops today. And also, a motion brought forward yesterday would see the city pursuing a tenant defense fund to help renters in disputes with landlords. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, the uh, legislature was recalled to Queen's Park to introduce uh, legislation that would uh, prohibit the required and termination of uh, any strikes by Ontario Power Generation. Energy Minister Greg Rickford had this to say. Well, there's no question we're on the clock, and this is a very serious matter. Essential service does not and has not formed any part of either the legislation or our discussions. We're focused on creating a fair mechanism through arbitration as a result of this legislation to make sure that uh, Ontario's electricity supply uh, continues. That is uh, the minister. Uh, Obviously, not everybody's happy about this. The opposition critics are uh, raving about this. Uh, Labour leaders are concerned about this. Uh, and suggesting that the the government jumped the gun. Joining us to talk about this is Donna Skelly. She, of course, is the MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook and parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation, and Trade. Uh, Donna, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Let's, ta- let's talk a little bit about why the, the legislature was uh, called back. As You've heard some of the opposition comments already that you guys jumped the gun. This was not necessary. Let me put it in context, Bill. Sure. The collective agreement between OPG, which is Ontario Power Generator, a generation, and PWU, which is the Power Workers Union, actually expired back in March of this year. But negotiations continued, and uh, the two groups were able to uh, reach a tentative agreement back in June. However, that agreement was rejected by a majority of the union's membership. So the uh, negotiations continued. OPG finally indicated to the union that what they had presented, which included a 6.6% increase in pay, was its final offer. The PWU, the union, again rejected that offer. And that was on December 13th. The next day, they gave notice to the government that they would be going on strike in 21 days. 21 days puts us just, um, you know, heading into into, uh, the new year. The problem is we can't afford to continue to operate our nuclear facilities if some of the membership is on strike. Um, As it stands, the union represents about 6,000 employees work at all of the OPG's uh, facilities, and that includes technicians, tradespeople, and nuclear operators. And OPG accounts for over 50% of the power in Ontario. It includes nuclear facilities, hydroelectric facilities, uh, even, I believe, one wind turbine. In order to shut down a nuclear facility, and, and again, you cannot operate a nuclear facility in Ontario without having Uh, the proper amount of staff on board. In order to shut it down, it takes 10 days. So we had to and we have to um, have this this, um, bill put in place to prevent this strike by Friday, or we have to begin the process of shutting down these nuclear facilities. And once you begin it, you can't stop. And that means we could be facing brownouts, 
and even potentially blackouts in the dead of winter in Ontario. Which is obviously a very ominous uh, scenario, and I, I can understand that. But uh, again, what we're hearing from other folks, including Chris Buckley, of course, one of the labor leaders here in the province of Ontario, is that, look, at you had other tools at your disposal that could have been arbitration. There's a number of things they could have done. Uh, you could have sat down at the table with them instead of what they consider using a hammer to kill a flea. Well, our utmost um, importance right now, our priority is safety and security of people in this province. And they may want to play that game, but we can't play that game when it, when it deal, you know, when we're talking about electricity, when we're talking about heat, we're talking about keeping the power on at hospitals. We're talking about our most vulnerable, potentially, uh, living in, in, in a, in a home without access to, to heat. They may want to play that game. We're not going to play that game. What we have done, this bill, Bill 67, actually, um, has, um, uh, processes in place to allow for a mediator arbitrator to step in so that they can continue to negotiate. And if they want to continue to negotiate, they can right now. But we can't take that chance. We cannot wake up one morning and and realize that our staff, the union workers, have walked off the job and we have to begin shutting down nuclear plants. We will, if that happened, we would see brownouts and possibly blackouts right across Ontario. It's a very, very risky game for these people to be playing. And I put, you know, I I think that the NDP are playing uh, this game, and I think that they're making a big mistake. People I've spoken to say this is not um, the uh, issue that they should be playing with. There's too much at risk, uh, too many lives are at stake, and this is not the time to be doing it. I have not seen the bill. Obviously, you've had a cold look at it, and it uh, looks like it's going to be at least a couple of days before this passes now because the opposition is not going to give us unanimous consent to this. But you mentioned arbitration. Is this binding arbitration that you're suggesting? Yes. So the OPG and uh, the union would have five days to agree on the appointment of a mediator and arbitrator, and then they would notify the Minister of Labor. Uh, if they don't, the minister would appoint a mediator arbitrator. But they can continue um, to negotiate. We would love to see a, a resolution before this, this goes into place. But the reality is there's far too much at stake to uh, wait until the last minute. We simply cannot wait until the last minute and then start shutting down uh, nuclear power plants in the province of Ontario that provide 51% of the power to Ontarians. Now, I'm just trying to get a read on, on exactly what the concern here, the sticking point with these uh, negotiations. And, and you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the financial offer they seem to offer have looked like it's okay. I don't know if that necessarily is what's jiving with all the workers who turned this thing down in the first place. But my understanding that one of the main points of, of dissension here is uh, uh, what they, they call the refusal to grant 300 uh, term workers, which I assume are like contract workers, I guess. And they essentially want them to have the same privileges as full-time. I understand that that is one of the sticking points, and I would love to be able to expand on it, but the, the truth of the matter is I haven't been privy to all of the, uh, the um, concerns, both on the side of OPG and, and on the, the union, so I'm, I'm going to stay away. But you are right. That is one of the, the issues that is uh, holding up uh, uh, an agreement at this point. And, uh, and who knows what's going to happen if, if they if mm-hmm. do start sitting down with the arbitration. So what is the time frame? My understanding is this could have actually passed if the uh, the opposition to give consent to this, and that's obviously not going to happen with the NDP. So this has to be dragged out for a few more days, I would think. Well, they can con- we can continue to ask them to uh, allow us to pass this with unanimous 
consent. They won't. They didn't. They've refused. Um, so we continue to sit at Queen's Park. It's, it's unusual to have a Christmas um, sitting, but we believe it's, it's crucial. It, it is something we had to do. It's not something we wanted to do, but we believe it was important uh, enough to, to bring the house back. We will be sitting right through the evening tonight uh, and until we have enough time into past second reading and then third reading. The NDP is, is saying this could go as late as Friday. I would really uh, think it would be wise for them to to really think about the message that they're sending to residents across this province. Residents in, in Hamilton, I mean, Andrea Horvath is the opposition leader, and she has to be able to stand up and say, look, you know, my uh, philosophy is far more important than your safety. Uh, I'd like her to say that to people who are on dialysis in, in uh, at St. Joe's or to seniors who are saying, okay, well, I have heat in January. This isn't, uh, we're not, this is not a game. This is very, very serious. It's a very serious issue. If we lose 51% of our power supply in January, it will be, um, it will be devastating to communities right across the province. Well, that's not going to happen, obviously, because of, uh, of what the government's going to be doing here. So, I mean, you've got that rustle to the ground. That's not going to be an issue anymore. But there's a greater issue here that some people are asking about, Donna. I wanted to get your comment about this. And it's, it's about process. And I understand where the NDP are coming from. And I don't think anybody's really surprised by the fact that the NDP are going to be supporting uh, organized labor uh, in, in any situation like that where there's a confrontation between labor and management. That's, that's what they're made of. We, we get that. But they, they do have a concern about process and the fact that, uh, you know, is this the thin edge of the wedge? Is this how this government is going to deal with the process uh, when it comes to labor negotiations? Uh, there is supposed to be, of course, workers' rights when it comes to bargaining, et cetera, et cetera, and the right to strike, unless, of course, you're going to make this a, 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 a kind of a bill where this is going to be uh, considered to be mandatory, where these guys can't strike an essential service. Are, are you considering something like that? And what about that process, Donna? This has been raised on, on many occasions about the essential service. We are not looking at that at this point. We're okay. simply focusing on trying to uh, get this bill passed so that we can keep the lights on. I, I understand this philosophy, this difference in philosophy and the allegations that it's heavy-handed. What is the alternative? If we don't do this, and uh, 10, well, let's, let's put it, 21 days from December 14th is when they served notice that they were going on strike. If we wait for the union to walk off the job, there will be power outages in Ontario. Is that the right thing to do? I don't think so. I think as a government, our responsibility is to all of the people of Ontario. I grew up in northern Ontario, and I know how bitterly cold it can get. I couldn't imagine if I heated my home with hydro, even with our furnaces that do require hydro to turn them on and off, I couldn't imagine not having heat in January. And that's what will happen. Because if they shut down, it takes 10 days. And if we start shutting down these facilities, we won't have power, period. So our option is, do we turn out the lights and follow the so-called, you know, continue with the philosophy that the NDP are willing to, the hill they're willing to die on? Or do we take action and protect what we believe is the right thing to do, protect the people of Ontario, ensure that hospitals can stay open, ensure that uh, nursing homes have heat, ensure that our most vulnerable are taken care of? That's what we believe is the right thing to do, and that's what we're going to do. Donna, given the severity of, of the implications uh, that we've been so talking about here, about blackouts, brownouts, whatever the case might be, should the government have become involved in this a lot sooner? 
Well, well no. I think that uh, this is the right process. We're trying to follow the process. We are um, doing as much as we can, uh, and we will do everything we can to prevent this. We've, we've tried to allow the process to continue. And, and, and remember that the negotiations began long before March 31st when mm-hmm. the contract expired. They were months prior to. So we've tried to allow them, both sides, to reach an agreement. They haven't. And the next step is simply to say, look, the safety and, and security of residents of Ontario is paramount, and we will do what we have to. And uh, if the NDP feels that that's, that's not their priority, well, then we have to disagree. I think Andrea should be embarrassed that she would rather, um, uh, she would actually, this is the hill she wants to die on, because I think it's, 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 it's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to make sure that the heat and that the hydro stays on in Ontario, not stand behind some uh, labor philosophy. MPP Donna Skelly uh, from uh, Flamborough Glenbrook, of course. Donna, thanks as always for the time. Appreciate it today. Anytime. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Marianne Mead Ward, uh, the mayor of Burlington, was talking to us, of course, about uh, the the cannabis policy for that city. And uh, she was hopeful at the time that uh, Burlington Council was going to give it a thumbs up, as uh, you've heard on CHML News this morning. Though They've kind of kicked it down the road again. And uh, they'll actually, I guess, have to vote on it uh, the week before the the deadline that the province has imposed here. Hamilton City Council are meeting as we speak right now. It started just a couple of minutes ago at Hamilton City Hall. And they're going to be hearing from some public delegations uh, as to whether or not they're actually going to vote on it today. I guess, well, time will tell. But there's a great deal of consternation for those that are supportive of the idea of having cannabis shops here in Hamilton. Because a number of councillors, I might even venture to say maybe even the majority that we've talked to on this program, have some serious reservations about that. I may actually say, forget about it. We're going to opt out. Uh, we're not, as I say, sure how the vote's going to go, but are these legitimate concerns? And and are they really just kicking a gift horse in the mouth if they simply say we're not going to do this? Joining us to talk about this is Michael Armstrong. Michael is an associate professor at uh, the Goodman School of Business at Brock University. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. I, I, I see that communities like Burlington, Hamilton, and others uh, making a big deal out of something here that, that really is, is not such a, a big concern about what might happen if, in fact, they decide to opt in? Well, it, it is a big issue, uh, cannabis consumption legalization and so forth, but I think the first thing to remember is what is not being discussed or decided here. Uh, so first of all, uh, this is not a vote on whether to allow cannabis production or cannabis uh, possession in Canada or in Hamilton, because that's already been decided by the federal government. That's what the federal law is about. Mm-hmm. This is also not a vote about whether cannabis can be consumed in Hamilton whether it can be bought and sold in Hamilton, uh, because that is uh, already given by the provincial law. Uh, cannabis is already being bought and sold via the online website, and unfortunately it's also being bought and sold via uh, illegal suppliers, uh, whether it's the uh, storefront so-called dispensaries or just the, the guy down the street kind of thing. So the only issue that's uh, up for council is whether to allow legal storefronts to also sell cannabis to make it more accessible uh, to consumers who want to buy a legal product. 
And, and that's what's going to be before council. But, of course, there have been so many other issues that have been circling around this discussion over the last little while. And, and you're right, notwithstanding the fact that it is legal and, and it's been going on for quite some time, uh, the, the, a number of councillors I've talked to, Michael, seem to be of, of the opinion that this is going to change things dramatically. Uh, and, and I'm not so sure. I mean, I saw the... A uh, survey that was done, I guess it was about a month or so ago, that indicated that about 75% of Canadians said, that, look, at the fact that this is legalized now is not going to change. Nobody's, it's not smoking pot, is going to say, I'm going to do it now because it's legal. Uh, there might be one or two, but it, I, I'm not so sure this is going to have such a significant impact on the population. Uh, I would tend to agree with that, certainly uh, not in the short term. Uh, I mean, even if uh, council votes to uh, allow stores, uh, there aren't going to suddenly open up 100 overnight. Uh, first of all, they don't become legal until April. Uh, second of all, there's currently a shortage of product supply uh, for these stores, and uh, the province uh, last week um, announced an interim measure where they're going to uh, ration the number of licenses, and this will limit to 25 across the whole province. Now, I'm not sure that's such a great idea. It's going to mess up a lot of uh, business plans. But nonetheless, it means that you know even if the council opts in, uh, there might be you know, one or two legal stores opening up in the spring with more gradually following as licenses and uh, supply become available. Um, so I don't think you're going to see a drastic change, certainly not a sudden change. And, uh, yeah, the surveys that I've read about, there are people who want to try it, um, but it's not like the whole population is suddenly going to shift to consumption. And as I alluded to in my introductory comments, um, the, the existence of legal stores is uh, it's certainly an issue, but it's, there, it's already available. If people want to try it, they are going to order online. I know in my, uh, the classes I teach, there are at least some students have already ordered products from the website. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of people uh, in the community have done that as well. So people who really want to try it um, can now do so legally regardless of what the council decides. And as we should mention also, of course, the, the medical marijuana industry has been going for quite some time here in the province. So there, <clears throat> excuse me, there's that element of it. But this is the, the recreational stuff. And, and, and obviously it's going to have an impact on people that are already using it. But the, this, the argument I hear from so many of the counselors I've talked to, though, Michael, and is, is look at we're concerned about the fact that we don't have much control over. This is all going to be provincial regulations. Uh, and, you know, as to where, the, how many shops can be there, uh, radio separation from schools and things of this nature, they'd like to have more control over that. Is that a legitimate concern? I, I'd agree with that. Uh, I'm, the uh, councils uh, across Ontario, I know in my own local area, Niagara Falls, St. Catharines area, um, are accustomed to having a certain amount of zoning control where uh, various stores can set up where various businesses can and can't uh, operate. Um, I, I can understand why they would uh, feel frustrated that they have uh, effect almost no control over specific store locations. Um, but whether that should mean, hey, let's not have any, that sounds like a pretty uh, uh, radical uh, reaction to that lack of control. Um, absolutely, I think uh, council should, could go back to the provincial government and say, hey, we want more control of this, please amend your law. But whether they should say, uh, okay, we're just going to shut down stores until you give us more control, uh, that sounds like a risky strategy. It, it, uh, it kind of undoes a lot of what we were hoping to achieve through legalization, which, keep in mind, is to compete with the black market. Yeah, it's 
kind of akin to say, okay, we're going to stand here and hold our breath until you give us what we want. Uh, and, and by the way, good luck with that. The province doesn't usually give in to that sort of thing. But it does and seem this to... this particular provincial government doesn't seem all that concerned about what municipal governments uh, care about. And, and that's that's rather different, because what they say and what they do are two different things. And, and again, maybe that's not unusual for governments. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, when, when Doug Ford became premier, of course, earlier this year, uh, he made a big deal of the fact that he was going to actually amend planning acts and, and give cities and municipalities more power over the planning process. Yet this legislation comes in about uh, the pot stores and basically says, we'll make all the decisions for you. You guys just do what we tell you to do. They uh, likewise uh, continuously talk about how they're open for business, how Ontario is open for business, and then yet last week they decide to meddle in the uh, business planning of pot stores and say, okay, well, we'll only have 25 stores initially. Uh, never mind what we told you two months ago. Uh, we've changed our mind. Uh, yeah, do what I say, not what I do, I guess is, is uh, exactly the way things run. But uh, w- again, what else is new when it comes to the way governments actually start to, to take power when they, they finally get the reins of power anyway in Queen's Park or in Ottawa, I suppose. Uh, what about the, s- the security concerns again, Michael? And again, something that I've heard from a lot of the councillors in Burlington and in Hamilton, uh, the ones I've, we've had on the program over the last little while. Uh, I know that there's a pot of money that's available uh, from the province initially to look after or what they call uh, security policing concerns over the first couple of years. I guess that money will dry up after that. There's a sun- sunset clause on this. Is is it a legitimate concern that the municipalities seem to have right now that, that they're going to get dumped on? This is really going to be a form of downloading, and this is going to be a major problem when it comes to policing and other issues? That could be uh, a concern, certainly. Uh, I don't know enough about the uh, the government budgets, uh, security requirements and such to comment specifically. Um, but again, you know, if you're concerned about having enforced bylaws about uh, where people can smoke it, uh, concerned about uh, how to deal with impaired driving. Those issues already exist. They will exist whether uh, Hamilton opts in or out of retail stores. Because, again, coming back to what I said in the introduction, p- cannabis is legal now. People can legally consume it in Hamilton. Uh, so all those potential problems and concerns, although they're legitimate, they exist regardless of whether Hamilton Council opts in or out of retail stores. Well, it, I, I just wonder if it's a little bit of a reefer madness, if I can just t- tear a phrase from bygone generations. That I, I, it's not as if we're going to have to have a police officer in front of every one of the stores, uh, wherever they're going to be located, and make sure that they, you know people of the right age go in there and that they're not selling it to kids, etc. I mean, we don't do that at, at LCBO stores or, or variety stores that are selling tobacco products. I, I just wonder if they're trying to create something here that's not really probably going to happen. I think there's a, an element of that. Uh, I mean, we could look at the other side of the coin and say, well, uh, if we had uh, a respectable number of legal stores where people could buy cannabis, you would probably see a lot fewer of these illegal shops popping up. Uh, I mean, they only exist because they know there's a demand for it. Um, so, yes, you might have to do more enforcement of legal stores, but you would have less uh, uh, effort required to shut down the illegal ones because you could just simply let the businesses compete with them. Um, I think part of that, uh, what you call it, reefer madness, is, is going back to the idea, you know, there's some people who really just rather not have cannabis be legal. They don't want cannabis to be smoked. And, and I can sympathize with that. I don't use the product. Uh, I would rather nobody else use it because, you know, honestly, it's, it's not a healthy thing. Uh, legalization is not because this is a great product. It's because, okay, legalizing is less bad 
and trying to enforce laws that uh, a substantial percentage of the population ignores anyway. Um, so yeah, I can sympathize the idea that you know we'd rather not have it, but we do have it. Uh, and so I think some of those people are just kind of trying to fight a rearguard action, say, well, we can't block cannabis, but let's at least block the stores because then we'll feel better. Yeah, and I'm in the same boat. I mean, I don't have any skin in this game. I, I don't use the product, don't intend to use it at any time in the foreseeable future that I could think of. But at the same time, uh, you have to respect people's opinions, but they also have to respect, as you mentioned, the fact that it's it's legal now. It's the law. I, I mean, let's face it. There are people that don't think we should be distributing alcohol either. And, yeah, you know, the LCBO stores are there, beer stores are there, and you just have to accept that that's the way it is, and you can choose not to partake if that's what you want to do. But uh, it just seems as if we're, we're fighting that. And I, I'm getting the sense that a lot of counselors are kind of giving in to that pressure from people. And, it, and a lot of it is based on, on myths, I think, about, about pot and, and, you know, who the clientele will be, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I, I, I just wonder if that's one of the things that's actually driving their decision or indecision, I guess, as, as the case might be. Uh, I think your comparison with alcohol is a good one. Uh, one of my colleagues at Brock University in the Health Sciences Department uh, he has studied uh, alcohol uh, prohibition legalization uh, over history. And uh, one of the observations he's fond of making is that uh, back when we had uh, prohibition uh, being lifted, uh, there were a lot of dry counties and wet counties uh, in the, the province. Uh, either alcohol could or could not be sold, depending on what town or city you happen to live in. Well, the dry towns and dry count, uh, communities were never really dry. Uh, because people who wanted to uh, uh, drink their alcohol would just drive across the, the, uh, to the next jurisdiction, buy the product, and bring it back, or they'd buy it from bootleggers. So uh, that's my concern if, uh, if Hamilton opts out, is you wouldn't actually be blocking consumption very much. Uh, you would just be diverting that traffic to other places, uh, like Toronto, which has opted in. Um, and... Yeah, you might feel better because you cast a no vote, uh, but you wouldn't really have accomplished anything except leave more of the market for the black market. In, in time, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that this is going to become more mainstream and more accepted, I guess, even by people that may not want to partake in, in this sort of thing. Is, is there a, a sense of inevitability that this is going to happen? In other words, if a council says, no, we, we're going to opt out of this, uh, is, it, is it reasonable to assume that at some point down the future they're going to have to reconsider that simply because of popular demand? I think that's likely. Uh, I mean, I have heard of uh, some jurisdictions, uh, like some towns in British Columbia, which is kind of surprising given uh, uh, cannabis reputation in, in British Columbia. But nonetheless, some towns out there have put a ban in place, but they've done it as a temporary measure. They said, okay, we want, we want enough time to really think about uh, how this is going to work in our community. So they put a, uh, they've opted out, but only for like a year or two, uh, so they can revise their bylaws, train their enforcement officers. With So they have every intention of opting in. It's just a question of, okay, they want another year or two to plan. So if Hamilton Council wanted to do something like that, say, okay, we want another year to plan, we want another year to negotiate with the provincial government, well, I don't know if that would be a good idea or a bad idea, but that would be kind of a rational approach to me. Um, but I think they do need to make it clear, you know, this is this is just a question of timing. Uh trying to say, okay, we're never going to have cannabis. Um, I don't think that would even last past the next election. Let me go back right to the beginning, if we could. 
uh, because a lot of the communities that, that are wrestling with this idea right now and, and trying to meet this deadline that the province has put on are, are really looking at the federal and provincial governments in many instances, Michael, and simply saying, look, you know, you guys rushed at this. They, you, you really didn't have your I's dotted and your T's crossed. And, and, and now it's us, pretty much up to us to kind of clean this thing up. And, and the whole thing seems to be dumped onto them right now. Did, did the feds in the province do their homework on this? I mean, did, or did they kind of rush because of, I guess, popular demand? Obviously, it was a campaign promise by the, the prime minister anyway, not so much here in the Ontario government. But, but was this ready, to, ready for prime time when they finally put it out there and said, okay, guys, in or out? Uh, well, I suppose that depends on your perspective. Uh, I, there are lots of things that I wish the federal government had done differently in their legislation. There are several things I wish the province had done differently in its initial legislation back when the uh, Liberals passed it a year ago uh, and then the updated one that the uh, Conservatives passed this year. Uh, but on the other hand, looking at the federal level, say, well, there's only four years between elections. Uh, they uh, started governing in 2016. We actually have got to 2018. There's uh, an election coming up next year. Uh, they really couldn't have taken much longer than they actually did. Uh, so there wasn't much more, I don't think, you could reasonably expect. No, it's not perfect. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things I hope they... Uh, will improve on when they revise the legislation. Um, but given the cycle of uh, how quickly or slowly government can move, uh, I don't think it's all that, uh, it's not too bad the way they've actually uh, implemented it. Public consultation is uh, obviously the, the excuse an awful lot of councils are doing for not making a decision right off the bat. Burlington, as we just mentioned, uh, decided last night at their meeting that they were going to wait until the new year before they actually had to vote on this thing because they want to hear from the public. But I, I get the sense this is a very polarizing discussion anyway, Michael. I mean, if you're in favor of it, you're in favor of it. And if you're opposed to it, uh, you're going to hold on to that opinion. I don't get the idea that too many people are going to be swayed in this discussion. The uh, local councils in the Niagara area, a lot of them are doing the same. Uh, St. Catharines, uh, they're doing some consultations, and uh, they've got the vote scheduled for January. Niagara Falls, same thing. Uh, so, yes, that's certainly going on. Um, yeah, I, it, I don't think it's an easy one for council in terms of responding to community demand because uh, you're going to have a, uh, a minority, although a, a rather vocal minority, saying, yes, we want this stuff. Uh, you've got another minority saying we don't we don't use it we don't really uh, and we'd rather not it be around um, and then the large group of people will say yeah okay whatever uh, we don't use it and if somebody else says well it's not really my business um, so I don't think they're uh, going to learn much that they don't already know that yeah the public's kind of divided uh, most people probably shrug your shoulders and say yeah go ahead whatever. Uh, but you've got some vocal minorities speaking out uh, rather strongly in both directions. Michael, is there any concern down in the peninsula about uh, cross-border traffic as a result of this? Uh, the people from uh, New York State may just simply say, hey, that's the, that's the panacea, Ontario, boy, i got to go over there and get me some of that stuff. Uh, that's something we're, we're interested to see how that works out. Um, cannabis tourism um, is certainly got potential. Uh, as you note, uh, New York State doesn't allow cannabis uh, although uh, over on the Windsor side, I believe Michigan just voted to uh, uh, partially legalize cannabis in their state uh, next year. Um, yeah, we—I don't think we've seen a lot of that. And actually, it's uh, the the way the laws are currently written. It's it's uh, not really facilitating that in the sense 
the limits on, yeah, anybody with an ID card could come across the border and buy it, um, but they might not have a good place to smoke it, um, and they can't take it back across the border with them. Uh, and the uh, Certainly the stories we're hearing about U.S. Customs are, are very keen to enforce uh, no cannabis coming back across the border. Uh, so I think that's something that's uh, in the future, but uh, so far not not a lot of sign of it. Michael Armstrong uh, from uh, the Brock University, uh, of course, Goodman School of Business. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate your perspective on this. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A motion uh, brought forward yesterday uh, is going to see the city of Hamilton now pursuing what they call a tenant defense fund to help renters uh, with disputes about hikes in their rent, obviously. Now, we've carried a number of stories about that in the last couple of months, uh, a number of them in the east end of the city, in fact. Chad Collins is the uh, city councilor for Ward 5 in the east end and uh, also the representative for an awful lot of the people that are concerned about some of the things that are going on with landlords, and he joins us to outline exactly the city policy is going to be. Chad, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us, with us here again today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Let's maybe give us a little background on, on what's going on and, and, and your reaction to that with this, this bill. Well, the you know, the city, you covered it this morning in terms of the, you know, the rising house prices here in the city, up 70% over the last five years. And those real estate changes have impacted rents. Rents are, are of course, going up, uh, you know, double-digit rent increases over the last number of years. As supply dwindles, it becomes a seller's market. And so many people are finding it very difficult to uh, to find an affordable place to live in our city. And um, and with the real estate market as strong as it is, we've we've witnessed a number of um, sales with our large apartment unit uh, buildings that uh, um, house hundreds of residents in them. And um, some of those owners who've purchased those buildings are undertaking extensive repairs and renovations. And I know that you referenced those uh, properties in my area. Um, millions of dollars have been spent um, in both the Riverdale area and as well as the Quigley and Tyndale area, if I use my own ward as an example. Mm-hmm. And the the uh, owners have the ability to apply to the province for an above-the-guideline increase, and that is um, that's uh, an increase that would be permitted to be passed along to tenants above the annual increase that landlords are permitted um, when the province establishes the, the rate increase at the beginning of a calendar year. So essentially, residents are accustomed to dealing with a 2%, around a 2% increase every year. Um, but these AGIs, above the guideline increases, allow the landlord to apply for more uh, to the province, to the Landlord Tenant Board. And, um, and they're allowed almost uh, up to t- almost 10% over a three-year period. And so you, you start to do the math in terms of the regular 2% that's permitted, maybe another 3% as part of this application process. And the, in residents, again, struggling to... To, to pay what are already considered high rents are uh, are looking at uh, prospectively uh, you know 10 15 percent over a period of uh, just three or four years and so that's uh, created uh, tremendous pressures and that process bill when le- when tenants receive the notice from their landlord and the landlord and tenant board is almost like a courtroom setting it's um, it, it, information is shared there's evidence that's provided by both sides both the landlord or the representatives and then the tenants have an opportunity to provide their own information that they have gathered. And what I've been told by residents who have participated in this process is that it is a very uh, time-consuming process, and it's a very complex process. And so the landlords traditionally hire a lawyer to represent them at these hearings. Um, These lawyers are are very well-versed in terms of the language that's used um, at the board, 
and they know the ins and outs of the legislation. For many tenants, this is a first-time experience for them. They're it's not got, it's got to be intimidating, Chad. It, it, it really is. And, you know, my, my first couple of meetings I had, if I use the Quigley and Tyndale Tenant Association as an example, they were provided the evidence by the, by the landlord's representatives and when they printed all the information out, Bill, it was as thick as probably three or four uh, Bibles and or, or dictionaries, whatever example you want to use. And uh, and so they were dealing with thousands and thousands of pieces of paper. And, and essentially, they were provided all of the justification the landlord was bringing to the board in the form of receipts. And so they were looking at landscaping receipts and elevator repairs and drywall receipts. And essentially, they had to go through all of this information to determine whether they were legitimate uh, expense forms submitted by the landlord, whether they fell under the uh, renovations and repair or whether they were considered maintenance. And then, of course, after compiling all of that information and, be- and coming up with their own opinion, someone had to present in front of the board. And, and again, um, a very intimidating process. Um, many people aren't accustomed to speaking in a public spe- setting, especially when there are dozens of people in the room, quite possibly the media following this. And so they've, you know, they, 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 Turned to me in my office, and, and I, you know, I can provide sponsorship support as I do to tenant associations, but it doesn't come close to to helping or assisting with the cost of maybe hiring a paralegal or or the equivalent to help them through this process. And so, I, uh, in doing some research this past year, dealing with organizations in my area, I noticed the City of Toronto has a tenant defense fund that they've had in place for quite some time now, and they allow tenant associations and individual tenants to apply to the city to secure resources um, to help them with this process, whether it's printing costs, whether it's hiring someone to help them make their presentation. Um, It it really is an all-encompassing grant process that helps tenants with, again, uh, something that most of them have probably never experienced before. Well, and, and therein lies the problem. And I've seen some of this, and I know your time on council, whether it's this board chat or even like mm-hmm. OMB hearings or anything mm-hmm. of this nature, uh, first of all, more often than not, the, the, the citizens don't have the, the, the legal expertise in situations like this. Uh, they right. got to feel an awful lot of the time as if the, de- the deck is stacked against them. Because Absolutely. The, the, the la- and I'm not trying to make the landlords out to be the bad guys here. No, and no. The, but the fact is, is that, like you say, they they have legal representation. They know the ins and outs. They know the legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most, fr- frankly, most tenants don't. And uh, so they, they feel as if, okay, how do how do we level the playing field here? And I guess this fund is going to be an attempt to do that. It, re- it really is. And it's it really is. Currently, it's a David and Goliath scenario, as I described it to Tevia Morrow, who wrote the report, uh, the article in The Spectator today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the tenants are there without resources, without the expertise, without the knowledge of even how the system works in terms of how they make their presentation and what's permitted as part of their presentation and what's not permitted, the time that they have. And then just, of course, the preparation in terms of the printing and all the other costs of in, in even getting, you know, their, some of their tenants to the to the meetings to act as witnesses. I mean, there are many people in this community who are obviously taking time off work or may not have the means to to get there through public uh, transportation. So there are all kinds of issues that uh, essentially, as you mentioned, it, it almost stacks the deck against tenants uh, in this in this process and within this forum. And um, and I think the fund will assist in terms of again not picking on landlords. It's really just trying to create a level playing field for those that are forced to go through this process. And to be clear, Bill. You know, the, the Quigley and Tyndale residents, um, their, the award that came out against them was 8% over three years. And they anticipate another application coming forward because it, uh, I understand that the application takes into account a certain time frame. Uh, as, as the landlord continues to make improvements in those properties, 
he then has the opportunity or she has the opportunity to make application again, and they're through this fight all over again. And so for many people, it's a, it's a very trying process and, um, and, and one that's difficult to, uh, to, to make their way through without some kind of assistance. And so I, I, I think this fund um, and the direction was to go off and create a terms of reference. Uh, I'm almost certain that our staff will turn to the City of Toronto, who've offered this grant for quite some time to, uh, to inquire about how those funds are distributed and what the application process looks like. Um, but, you know, I, I, and I don't see this issue going away locally. As you noted earlier with the rising uh, real estate prices, and as Tevia noted in his article in The Spectator today, um, we're seeing almost a, um, a doubling of the number of AGI applications before the board over the last uh, five to seven years. And with rising rents uh, still a reality for residents in our community, I can only anticipate that those numbers will probably go up over time. Well, let, let me ask you about those. Uh, in your experience and, and from the discussions you've had with some of the, the renters, some of the residents in, in your area, Chad, mm-hmm. uh, the, these uh, AGIs, as, you, as they refer to them as, did these just get rubber stamped? I mean, is there any uh, evaluation as to exactly what they intend to spend the money on and why they have to raise the rent? Well, I think there's justification, obviously. I mean, if landlords are making substantial improvements uh, through the through the application process, then I, you know I, I think there should be something out there for them to to try to recover those costs. Sure. I think what I found for, through this process and in reading some of the investigative reports that uh, Tevia in particular has written, that the, you know, and, and having been sat around the table with tenants as they they have the yellow highlighter out and they're they're going through some of these. I mean, there's in many of these applications, there's everything, including the kitchen sink that's included. And, and I've noticed um, a number of times where there's maintenance costs, and so the removal of dead trees on a, on, on a site, um, I, I don't see that as a, as a substantial improvement to the property as it relates to an upgrade or a renovation. That's a maintenance issue. And so oftentimes, you know, landlords, um, and not all of them, but I've seen applications where some things have been included which shouldn't have been in there, and when you're dealing with thousands and thousands of pages, it's a, it's a tricky process. And so I... Uh, I, I think that the province probably needs to look at their legislation at some point in time to determine whether there's a better way to go about this. Uh, I think the short time frame that uh, landlords are allowed to uh, to pass on these costs, you know, a period of three years for many people who are already looking at the cost of inflation added to their rent, I think is a short time frame. Um, there should be the ability maybe to stretch these costs out over a period of time. Um, but I, I do feel that... Um, more time and thought to answer your question specifically, Bill. I, I do think that more time and thought needs to be put into these applications. They're very complex, and to see some of the decisions lately come up close to the nine percent rather than something lower for tenants in the tenants' favor, I think is problematic. Well, I get the sense from even just what you've described here that there's maybe a little too much leeway in, in the guidelines, uh, you know, as to what they can claim and not claim. As you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a capital improvement, as opposed to as you say, maintenance or something like this. I mean, you know, there there comes with owning a building like that some financial responsibility. We get that, uh, but you know, fixing the elevator is is that really a capital improvement? I mean, or is exactly. that that's, that's wear and tear, right? Exactly, uh, and yeah. and the residents don't know that. I mean, you know, they they don't have uh, information. They're not privy to all the the ins and outs of, of what's going on here. You, you figure these guys have to really kind of get their act together, and, and they they can help put these guys on a level playing field. And I agree, and I and I think that the fund hopefully will assist tenants, especially for for those that are in large uh, apartment buildings, or in some cases, com- you know, an entire complex. And so. The Quigley and Tyndale uh, Tenant Association, they were dealing with two townhouse complexes and one large apartment building. Riverdale, of course, and you've covered this, they have four buildings that are part of their their rent strike. And so these are 
they're not just one property. And sometimes there are multiple properties that are on the application. And it is beyond the, I think, the ability of the average person, even in a group setting, to take this on as a layperson and, and be successful. Uh, I, I fully believe that, especially for some of these large applications, you actually need legal counsel or even a paralegal to assist you with these in, in terms of even having some sort of a, a fair chance of uh, making your way through the process where it, it's, it's it, where you could be consider it a, a fair process for both sides. And so I, I don't think that the legislation as it's written right now works in, in favor of the tenants as it relates to process and fairness. And I, and I believe that these funds, hopefully over time, will allow some of our tenant associations and or individual tenants to apply for resources and put those resources to good use in the form of proper representation. But when they go through this process uh, and and they finally land in front of the the Landlord and Tenant Board, uh, Mm -hmm. is there any consideration at all for for the ability to pay? I mean, mean, you've just outlined a couple of rather extravagant rent increases over and above the usual rent increases they're going to get. As you know, there's going to be a ceiling pretty soon where they're simply going to say, I can't afford to live here anymore. But Then where do they go? Yeah, and, and with the rising rents and, and the housing wait list that we have, and, and again, I mentioned earlier, it's a seller's market, you know, that ability to pay is one of the key questions, and I don't think it's part of the process. Um, I, I, I do know that there's a mediation process. They try to find, you know, kind of a middle ground with some of the, the evidence that's provided and, and some of the arguments that are made, and they're always trying to find ways and means in which to avoid a full hearing, I believe, uh, with all all components that in, in all files that reach the landlord and tenant board. Sometimes, though, for these larger files, it's just not possible, and um, and so they go to the full he- through the full hearing. A, a decision is rendered, and residents are expected to pay. And as I mentioned, it, it many of these residents will be facing not just one application that will uh, deal with a three-year period. Some of them could face multiple applications over a period of almost a decade or longer. It just depends on how long. Uh, the landlord decides to make improvements in the building and how many applications they uh, put to the board. And so it can be a never-ending process. And this is just the beginning, Bill. I, I, you know, I, as, land, as these properties exchange hands and, um, and are sold, um, uh, you know, I, I anticipate with many of our housing stock, the buildings are 30, 40, 50 years old. A lot of these buildings are in need of repair. And so I, I, I welcome those changes and the investments that landlords are making We've long talked about property standards issue in these buildings. So to see these repairs and renovations take place is a really good thing for those people who live there. It's a quality of life issue for them. But I think back to your point to ability to pay, um, that's going to be an increasing issue that we need to grapple with over the next three, five, ten years. As more of these buildings are renovated and more applications are put to the board, tenants are going to continue to see almost double uh, rent increases. Well, and and there's the concern, and I agree with you. There has to be some fairness here. I'm not suggesting, mm-hmm. as I say, the landlords are the bad guys here, yep. uh, because if they're going to put capital improvements into this, yeah, they, they, there's a, a fairness issue here for them as yep. well. But we're not building any new buildings anytime soon, Chad. So, I mean, you nope. know, this is this problem is only going to get worse as time goes on. Absolutely, and I see this as an, an issue really that affects older communities and I, who have an, an old and aging housing stock. Toronto, obviously, this, you know, they were going through these rent increases a long time ago. Obviously, with the real estate market in Toronto being as crazy as it has been over the last 10 or 20 years, this isn't something that's new for them. This is something that's new for Hamilton over the last three to five years in terms of 
you know, how many applications we're seeing and the impacts that it's having on our tenants. And so I, I can only hope that the province sees this as an issue. You and I have talked, though, about the, sort of the political climate at Queen's Park, mm-hmm. and, and I don't see it wor- you know, any legislation working in tenants' favours over the next three to five years. That's very unfortunate. I only see that pendulum swinging maybe more in favour of landlords, and so I'm not holding out any hope that there are changes on the horizon from a legislative perspective that might seek to balance the scales, so to speak. But I, I think this tenant defense fund, if committee and council see the merit in the new year, will will go at least a little a, a little way in, in trying to um, balance those scales and ensure that when tenants are forced to go through this process, it's, it is a fair process. And once again, here's the municipality trying to clean up a mess that the province hasn't uh, done much about. Chad, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this. Thanks, Bill. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.